Um, but tree bird uh, is a is a is a kind of a tree, and he lives in the forest. And uh, he, he and his people um, do not want to commit to any particular side, good or evil. They're very slow. They drag their feet about a course of action. And up until the eleventh hour, tree bird and his people, the Ents. And by the way, if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, sorry. This is just like going right over your head, right? Um, they want to they want to maintain this policy of strict new, neutrality to be left alone, and they don't want to side with goodness, and they don't want to side with the dark forces of Mordor, the the, the the evil ones. And so Treebird says says this: Of course, it is likely enough, my friends, likely enough that we are going to our doom, the last march of the Ents. But if we stayed at home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. That thought has long been growing in our hearts, and that is why we are marching now. He has this illusion, and the ends had this illusion of neutrality, that you could be neutral. But the reality is, there is no neutrality. And in God's ways, there is no neutrality. There is no sitting on the fence. There is no middle here. There is, e- there is either walking the way of the ungodly that leads to destruction, or the way of the righteous in two ways, two ways, nothing in between. The book of Psalms in Psalm chapter 1 opens this up, opens this up. Um, uh, we, we are been doing a series in the disciples and discipleship and disciple making and Birch preached last week on Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to pick that up um, in a couple weeks. Next week, Matthias Espinel will be speaking. I'm going to pick that up. But I wanted to just take a little detour here. And after we finish this series of discipleship, by the way, I want to uh, have a summer in the Psalms. I'm going to try to take a psalm each Sunday here and, um, and, uh, and, and unpack what it says here and spend really the rest of our summer in the Psalms here. Um, but uh, the, 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 psalm, the, psalms, the Psalms are an, is an amazing book. It, the psalms, psalms are broken up into five different books, actually, um, that many think reflects, each one reflects one of the books of the law. For example, the first book of the Psalms uh, reflect the book of Genesis in a lot of ways, the second book, Exodus, etc. Here, um, there, are, there are 150 Psalms in this book, and they're all written at different times. So they're not arranged chronologically, they're actually organized to fit the topic and the theme here. It expressed each of the five books of the Psalms. Um, and chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Psalms are the introduction to the entire book. The introduction to the entire book. So Psalm 1 is the key psalm. In fact, Psalm 1, when I was a kid, was the very first chapter, the very first passage that I learned as a kid. On summer vacation, uh, as a very young in elementary school, we worked on Psalm 1 after our lunch, uh, growing up in my parents' home. And uh, by the way, don't think that we learned all kinds of passages and we can just quote anything in the Bible. That was one particular summer that I remember. But mom and dad drilled that into us and Psalm 1 was the very first one that I memorized and I, and I remember it today. I think we got to pick out a prize from a Christian bookstore. Remember Christian bookstores? They don't exist anymore. Um, but uh, we got to pick out a, a, a prize from there for, for memorizing it. But I, I'll, I'll never forget it because of that. So hi, hi God's word in your heart here. But the book of Psalms in Psalm chapter 1 really presents two ways. And the ways are being in God, and the other way that leads to destruction is being out of God. And you'll notice, as, as Rowan read, that it begins with this word blessed. It begins with this word blessed. There's two Hebrew words for blessing. 
There's one that we usually think of that's used by God to pronounce a benediction on someone, like the Lord bless you and keep you, right? God blesses you unconditionally. There's another word that's used by uh, many times in Scripture of, of, of humans referring to other humans. Conditions for blessings. Conditions. This is the way, um, this is the word that's used in Deuteronomy with the blessings and curses. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. Well, the, the word here is that second usage, and the idea of blessed is really this. It's a state of being. It's, it's, it's how happy is the one who does not walk in these ways. Or, and by implication, who does walk in these ways. And that's the word that's used here. It's a state of happiness here. A joyfulness. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, uh, there's a condition. If you, if you follow this path, this is, this is a state of happiness here. The first thing I want us to see this morning is what this blessing is. What this happy way is. Uh, how happy is the one who does not walk in these ways. So, so the first thing I want you to see this morning is that being in God decides to say no. As I said, there's no neutrality. There's the two ways. There's the ways of God and the ways of destruction, right? That's what this passage is, is, is laying out very clear. There's no, there's no neutral. But if you're going to walk in the ways of God, there must be things you say no to. Just very, very simple here. And so, you'll notice in verse 1, there are three negative things that increase in emphasis, that increase in, in, a, um, uh, in severity. And so the psalmist is saying in verse 1, Blessed is the man, O happy is the man, that walketh not in the counsel of the godly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. What he wants us to understand is, that, is this, that those who trust in the Lord and are in God are not marked by these, by these things as a pattern of their life. They have said no to these things. He, he uses three, three ideas here. Counsel, Way and seat or assembly or dwelling. And really what he wants us to grasp is, is that this is about thinking that results in behaving, that results then in belonging. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that our identity needs to be in God and we do not find our identity in this world and walk down these paths, which begins with our thinking, then our conduct, and then our belonging here. So, he says, first of all, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, those who walk in God's ways and are happy in God, are in God. They decide no because they do not look to those out of God as a source of wisdom. They do not look at the world and accept the world's advice based out of the world's core values. They do not walk. That word walk there refers to a habitual lifestyle. It's not referring to someone who might err off the road and get back on here. This is talking about habitual lifestyle here. And the ways of those who are happy in God and in God uh, uh, do not walk looking for the world as a source of wisdom. So it begins with your thinking, right? 
The second thing they do, they say no to is, is this. They do not take the path of sinners who are out of God and away from God. They are not a party to its ways. They, they stand up and are counted among... They, they take a stand for God. They are not counted among the righteous. They do not stand in the way of sinners. To stand means to be, to be counted among. To be counted among. So they don't take the path of, of, of sinners that begins with the wrong thinking of taking the counsel of sinners. The third thing they say no to is their chosen influences. Nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Their chosen influences, those who influence them, those they are drawing their counsel from, those who are having input into their life, the ones they are, they are, they are, they are uh, not filtering in here, but filtering out, they are, they, their influences are not those who mock God or are self-satisfied or proud. Because Proverbs tells us those, the, the scorners are the ones who are farthest away from repentance. Their hearts are the hardest here. And, and so they do not keep an agreement in company with those. So the first thing you need to understand in the, in, the, in the two ways, that being in God, the right way, the one way, means you have to say no. You have to say no. Some of you this morning could give you stories about things you had to say no to. Some of you are on the path of right. Well, all of you who are on the path of righteousness have had things that you had to say no to. When you first came to Jesus Christ, you had to say no to the world and yes to Jesus. You had to say the world behind me, the cross before me, right? Some of you who are young who are growing up in your, fa- in your, par- in your homes and your parents here and, and you're kind of under this shelter, right? You're under this, this umbrella here and God has been so loving to put you uh, in that kind of a home here. And, and, and you're tempted to see, oh, I want to start th- thinking like, like the world. I'm gonna, I'm, uh, the world values that and I kind of value that. The world's going this way, or I'm seeing some of my friends go this way here, and I want to follow that. I want to go, I want to see where that leads. I want to see where that that, uh, turn in the path goes. Or, I'm embarrassed to be counted among God's people. I, I, I want to be counted among those who... Mock God, and so you're, you're you're being tempted right now in that way. And the Scripture says that is a dangerous place to be. In Greek mythology, there is a Greek goddess Medusa, and she had a face so hideous that if you looked at her, it would turn you you to stone, turn hearts to stone. That's the idea behind this passage. Hearts that begin to think the world's ways and begin to stand in the way of sinners and then begin to count themselves among the assembly of the sinners. What's happening here is a hardening of the heart. Hardening of the heart. Um, Maybe you know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote here. And Dr. Jekyll in the story, he made this concoction that when he drank it, it turned this kind doctor by day into this devilish Mr. Hyde by night. And Dr. Jekyll became even more and more addicted to this potion until finally he turned into Mr. Hyde without even needing to drink the brew. Evil took over, triumphed and destroyed him. And that's what the psalmist is warning us about. 
having hearts that are inclined to turn after the counsel of the ungodly, the way of sinners, and being counted among the scornful here, he's saying that is a hard heart and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And that's actually a biblical truth. That's a biblical truth. What we worship is what we become. We look into the glory of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we become like His glory. Um, but, but consider this. Consider that principle and think about two men. Let me give you two examples here. Charles Darwin, who wrote this in his autobiography. My chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. He says, it is the only thing which makes life endurable to me. Now let me ask you a question. What effect did that have on Darwin when that became his source, right? Um, he said this, up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now for many years I found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I'm kind of with him on that. Though some of you aren't and you're going to get back at me. I know that, but... Anyway, he says, My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness. I became a withered leaf for every subject except science. That's what he poured his heart into, right? Of course, it was more theory than science. Let me give you another individual, Jonathan Edwards. At the age of 19, young people, the age of 19, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Resolved to cast my soul in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in Him, and consecrate myself wholly to Him. Later in his life, he reflected on that early resolution. He died in his 50s, but he reflected on that early resolution at the age of 19, and he says this. Because his object of worship was Christ and how it affected his soul, he said, it brought an inexpressible purity, a brightness, a peacefulness and ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or garden. Two very gifted, intelligent men. One became, in his own admission, a withered leaf, and the other, a flourishing garden. The object of what they worship became became really who, who they became. It shaped them. It shaped them. John says this in his letters, in his letter in 1 John 2, Do not love the world. Love not the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's talking about the values of this age, this world system. He says, for everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which is the pride in, uh, many times in, in one's possessions, is not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world with its lust, it's passing away. The one who does the will of God abides or remains forever. So, being in God in the blessed life means you must say no. You decide to say no. There's a responsibility there. But secondly, I'd like you to see that being in God decides to say yes. Look at verse 2. But the man that does not walk in these things, does not stand in these things, does not sit and count themselves among these things, his, but his delight it is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. 
that but there is, is, is but indeed in the Hebrew. It's a contrast here. It's a strong contrast. He does not walk in this way. But indeed, this is what he does invest in. And the things that he does invest deeply in and heavily in are marks of what it is to be in God. To be in God. He is, he is marked by a... The, the, he, he delights in his soul in the fullness of God's instruction for His children. That word law there means instruction. And His delight is in the law of the Lord, in the instruction of God for His children in Him. It forms His delight. It forms the basis of His pleasure. It forms the basis of His happiness, of His joy, of His gladness. That's where He finds His amusement. That's where He finds His entertainment. That's where He finds His value, His treasure. And what I want you to see here is that this way of being God, it begins in the inward man. It doesn't go from outside in. It begins in the inward man. His delight. His delight. It it, it begins in the mind, the heart. It's an inward that moves outward. It's a heart that's captured in the Word of God. There there are inward realities. It's the delight of the will. It starts on the inside. It's something that, that he or she doesn't just silently reflect on. But he says... And in his instruction, in his law, doth he meditate day and night. That word meditate means to means to whisper, to, to murmur, to, to think hard. <clears throat> now we have a little cultural um, uh, objection to this idea of meditation. I remember um, uh, listening to someone say, I just can't get anything out of my Bible reading. And what they meant by that was this. Their practice was they would read a certain amount of Scripture a day and they would hope they would come scan upon some gem, some nugget from the Word of God. And that would be... And sometimes they wouldn't get that nugget. And what they were missing is the Scripture doesn't tell us to get nuggets. The Scripture tells us to meditate on it. It tells us to think. You see, the whole of, the whole of, of reading our Bible, of praying, there is captured in this idea of meditation. Meditation on the Word of God. Filling your mind, thinking, pondering, I mean, uh, pressing on that text, squeezing the passages that we're, that we're reading here, uh, uh, here to, 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 to get the life of God in it. Now, advertisers spend millions of dollars each year studying the science of attention. Six and a half cent- seconds is what they say the typical viewer pays attention to of any TV ad. So we have about six and a half seconds of attention on the product here. That's not how you can approach the Bible. Your mind might be trained to do that to the television, and the internet, etc., and all the different forms of media. That is not how you will flourish. No matter how society is, no matter how culture is, you will not flourish if that's how you treat the Bible. By the way, as a comparison, scientists think that a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. So. <laughs> Nicholas Carr, an expert on how technology is shaping our minds and lives, and he's lamenting how our media is and the Internet, etc. He said, in his words, it's chipping away at, at the capacity and co- contemplation that he has. He says, my mind expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. He said, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy in a jet ski. And friends, we must be scuba divers who are, who are mining deeply, who are, who are diving deeply in the Word of God if we are going to be people who are, in, who are, who are changed into God's image here. 
It doesn't happen by, by uh, happenstance. It doesn't happen by, by just, oh, yep, I read today. It happens by thinking about the Word of God. And I wonder, are you deciding to say no to the values of the world which says the Bible isn't important? And are you deciding to say yes here? By God's grace, are you deciding to say yes to, be, to being a person who meditates in God's Word? It saturates. Notice he says, meditates day and night. The point of that is, it's continually. It's, it's, it's arresting his soul. It's, it's dwelling. It's umpiring his life here. Or do you treat the Word of God like zipping along the jet ski, on a jet ski on the surface? You can't. You can't. Um, one of the residents of Camden, at least he used to be a resident, I don't know if David McCullough still is a resident here, he's a famous writer uh, in Camden. He tacked a plaque above his desk that reads, Look at your fish. Look at your fish. And it's a story about the value of seeing. And he shared the story behind that short statement. It's a test that Louis Agassiz, the 19th century Harvard scientist, gave every new student. He'd take a smelly old fish out of a jar of formaldehyde. He would set it in a tin pan in front of the student and say, look at your fish. Then he would leave. When he came back, he'd ask the students what they'd seen. Not very much. They would say, often. And he would say again, look at your fish. He would do that for days. And that student would be encouraged to draw the fish, but he could use no tools for examination, just hands and eyes. And one student, who later became a famous scientist and went through Louis' class, left the best account of this ordeal with the fish. He says, after several days, he still could not see whatever it was that Agassiz wanted him to see. But he said, I see how little I saw before. Then the student had a brainstorm and announced it to Louis the next morning. Paired organs, the same on each side. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, very pleased. The student asked what he should do next, and, and Louis said, Look at your fish. And so he comes more often than not from looking at what's been on the table all along. And so, and so he began to discover more and more things about this fish, and his descriptions became longer and longer. And friends, that's what we're talking about here with the scriptures. Look at the Word. Look into the Word. Look into the Word. Uh, In an interview, actor Anthony Hopkins said that when he gets a movie script, he reads it it through between 100 and 200 times before production. He makes notes in the margin, he scribbles, he doodles, he imagines how it will look like on stage or the screen, and by the time he is finished, he says that script is internalized. He knows his character. He's a very successful actor. He knows his and everyone else's lines. He's able to improvise. He's a personification of the script. And if a Hollywood actor can read a script a hundred times, why can't I do that with the book of the Bible? Right? Why can't I take the book of James... And read that over and over and over again. Look at the fish. Look at the fish. Look at the fish. You know, when you get in the Word of God, you begin to discover the writer's personalities. Become the things that, that, are, that, are, that are key to them. Uh, you, you start to not just see verses and chapters, you start to see themes that are repeated and, 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 uh, and, and uh, the, the, the influence that might have influenced them as they were writing the Scripture as far as the culture that they're in, etc. Here, You begin to see the, the mind of God in Scripture. Notice that if the man in verse 1 is the one that does not do these things, and he's the one in verse 2 that does do these things, 
He is a person who has moved from a self-centered view to a God-centered view. Why do we study the Word of God? For that very purpose. To know God. To see God. So that we can say with Isaiah, like he did in Isaiah chapter 6, I saw him high and lifted up. Woe is me. Woe is me. Uh, The psalm here is developing this theme and and saying this is what really needs to shape a man's thinking. Because a man's thinking in the Word of God will shape his life. The word meditate is a word that's used in chapter 2 and verse 1b. What does chapter 2 say? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? That word imagine is the idea of the word plot. It's the same word that's used to meditate in chapter 1. Plot. It's, 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 it's the idea that the evil, uh, the, the empires of this earth are plotting against God. They are planning. They are, they are letting this, this dominate their mind and their rebellion against God. And the writer in Psalm 1 is saying, in essence, the same way for good we should be meditating God and His works and His strategy here. Maybe you're wondering, well, I'm not very attentive. How do I get the Word in my heart? How can I meditate? Let me suggest one one simple practical way. Some of you may have heard of Harriet Tubman. She was a spy uh, who, even in moments of extreme danger, uh, she she demonstrated uh, calm courage. She was born into slavery in the 1820s. She was nearly killed when her master hurled a metal object at her. And she staged this daring escape in 1849 and spent hundreds, uh, spent years rescuing hundreds out of slavery and leading them to safety. Her code name was Moses because she never lost a single escapee from slavery in the Underground Railroad. During the Civil War, she became a secret agent for the Union Army. She worked behind the enemy lines to scout out the territory. She had a bounty on her head, but somehow uh, she managed to evade, uh, evade capture. But she was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And she spent much time and all these accolades. She spent much time learning and memorizing and meditating on, on, on Scripture. One of her favorites was Isaiah 16.3, Hide the fugitives, do not betray the refugees. She pondered those passages. And what she did was this. She turned the passages into prayers. She turned the Scripture into prayer. This is what meditation is. She learned uh, that the Word of God would abide in her heart, Right? And, and, she, and she, she says she prayed all the time. She told her biographer about my work everywhere. I was always talking to the Lord. When I went through the horse trough to wash my hands and took up the water in my hands, I said, Oh Lord, wash me, make me clean. When I took the towel to wipe my face and hands, I cried, Oh Lord, for Jesus' sake, wipe away all my sins. When I took up the broom and began to sweep, I groaned, Oh Lord, whatsoever sin there be in my heart, sweep it out. Lord, clear and clean. And she was a person of action and, and, and boldness here, but she built a mindset here in the Word of God that transcended her humble, unlearned background and transformed her life. And friends, that is an example of, of someone who habitually hid God's Word in their hearts and meditated on it day and night. So being in God does not only decide to say no, it decides to say yes. And th- thirdly here, being in God is safe. It's a place of safety. doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to you, but it's a place of, 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 of refuge. Look at verse 3. And the result shall be like a tree planted by the roofs of water, bringeth forth its fruit in its season. The result is 
is there that the word planted means transplanted. Transplanted. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's like a transplanted tree, and it's just not, not just set on the banks of some random river here. The word there is an irrigation canal. So I think that's already been, been made here. And, and, and when you draw near to God in His Word, you know what He does? He draws near to you. And look at the place where He puts you. A tree by irrigation canals. He transplants you and puts you by the irrigation canal. And friends, what you need to understand is these saying no and these saying these things saying yes to God is not God trying to make your life difficult. This is His love. This is what He wants you to be. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to reach your potential in Christ. He wants you to grow. Look at His love. He draws near to you. Look at the place He puts you. By the river. He takes you out of the parched land and He puts you by the river. This river here that won't dry up. This is an irrigation canal. It's designed for this. He'll supply it. Look at His love. Look at what He intends for you in your obedience. He puts you where you reach your potential for Him. So He receives glory. A river could run wild. One of the oasis or wadis in the desert could run dry like it did to Elijah. The streams of water here, this irrigation canal provides a steady, directed, full supply of life-giving water. And notice what he says. Leaf bring forth his fruit in his season. It produces fruit at the appropriate times. Leaf will not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. He's not saying this about prospering, that... Um, if you are in God and you're meditating on His Word, that you're going to start a business and that's going to be a successful business. The idea there of prosper is this: that that tree reaches its goal, it reaches the end. There is success in that manner. And then he says this: if being in God is safe, then of course the opposite is true. Not being in God is unsafe. And so with with a, with a pulpit bang here, he says this. And verse 4. The ungodly are not so. Literally in the Hebrew it says, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. They are out of God. They are, they are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. They're, they're different here. They're dry. They're barren. They're parched. You might wonder what the chaff is. That was the grain that they would gather and they would, they would stamp on it and then it would take a winnowing fork and throw it up in the air and the wind would blow the part that would separate the husk would separate. We really don't use do that much ourselves today, but maybe you can think of like an like an onion. You peel away some of that husk there, an onion husk. Look how different that is to the to the rooted tree, right? Dr- dry, barren, parched, useless versus living rooted, a fruitful tree, unstable, without root, without fruit, without water, vulnerable to the wind, won't stand. Look at the result. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand. They shall not have a place of standing to defend themselves in the judgment, verse 5, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand. They will not be able to rise up and have a say, have a standing in their trial in the day of judgment. They do not want the way of heaven here on this earth. They will not have the way of heaven there in the day of judgment. And notice they are examined before the assembly of the righteous, those who have been made rightly related to God. So you see that being in God is safe. Is safe. And the opposite is true. I wonder where you are. What things your heart is pursuing? 
If we took an analysis of your life here, we would say that the direction of your life is toward God by His grace? Or is it away from God and His ways? There are only two ways. The, the, the last thing I want you to see, the fourth thing I want you to see, is that being in God is eternally worth it. It's eternally worth it. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This 6, verse 6 here. The Lord knoweth. That's a word in Hebrew that means personal knowledge, being intimately experienced with a person's reality. It means actively knowing. First uh, Corinthians 2, Paul tells us that God's Spirit is intimately acquainted with those who are His children. He talks about how the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who, who knows our thoughts? We don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what my thinking here. But the Bible says in the same way, uh, though we don't know the thoughts of each other, uh, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. He dwells in the righteous. The Spirit of God. He knows the righteous. We participate in the life of God. And the leaf of the righteous never withers. And notice the contrast. But the way of the ungodly shall, mark it down, count it, shall what? Perish. Shall reap destruction. You look at a passage like this and say, wow, sounds like i got a lot of responsibility. And you do. The points were very clear. You need to say no and you need to say yes. But it begins in the inward, doesn't it? And that happens as you are rooted in the Word of God. And the Bible pictures you as a tree that God has put. He is transplanted by these rivers. And these rivers of water are nourishing your roots. It will never run out. When you're in the Word of God, it will never run out. Your leaf will not wither. You'll produce fruit in your season. Right? say, well, that doesn't really describe me very well. And I want to tell you that the individual who this perfectly describes who never wavered or failed in this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the man who did not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stood in the way of sinners, sat in the seat of the scornful. The Lord Jesus Christ was in the world. He was not of the world, was He? He was known for sitting down with the publicans and sinners. But He was not known for one who was being influenced by evil, was He? Jesus Christ is the only perfect, righteous person without exception. He followed His Father's will perfectly. And ultimately, it takes Him to the cross, doesn't it? He he doesn't seem to succeed at the cross. He's killed, right? But when we see the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, He reached the goal. He reached the goal. Whatever He did prospered, didn't it? He reached the goal. He atoned for sin. He was buried. He was swallowed up in death. But He ascends into the presence here of God's joy forever. Friends, that's where we find the power to obey what this Scripture says. It is through Jesus Christ that we find ourselves rooted and we walk in that. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ that we could say with the psalmist David, and a few psalms later in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow or pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
It's through Jesus Christ as we as New Testament believers can look at this psalm here and say that yes, being in God is eternally worth it and it's through Christ that this happens. Someone wrote these words, The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Be still my soul, redeeming love, out of the dust of Calvary, is rising to the throne above. There is no vengeance in His cry, while it is finished, fills the sky. Forgiveness is the final plea. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. My heart can barely take it in. He pardons all my guilty stains. Surrender all my shame to Him. He breaks the curse of every chain. My sin is great, but greater still the boundless grace His heart reveals. A mercy deeper than the sea, the blood of Jesus speaks for me. When my accuser makes the claim that I should die for my offense, I point him to that rugged frame where I found life at Christ's expense. See, from his hands, his feet, his side, the fountain flowing deep and wide. Oh, he did shout the victory. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Worthy is the Lamb, Lamb for sinners slain. Jesus, Lord of all, glory to His name. Heaven crying out, let the earth proclaim. Power in the blood, glory to His name. Jesus, oh let my soul arise and sing. My confidence is not in vain. The one who fights for me is King. His hope, His covenant remain. No condemnation now I dread. Eternal hope is mine instead. His word will stand. I stand redeemed. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, the way of those who are rightly related to God. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. Friends, there's only two ways to live. There, there are only two ways in this psalm. There's the way of destruction and there's the way of Christ. I wonder, believers, are you hearing competing voices? I wonder what you're doing to those competing voices. And friends, I'll tell you, if you're not in the Word of God, and you're not, uh, verse three, uh, verse 2, your delight is not in the law of the Lord, and it's not something you're meditating on, those voices will be pretty strong. They'll be pretty strong. But if your delight's in the law of the Lord and you're meditating day and night, God has wonderful grace. He has wonderful strength, wonderful power that flows through His Word. In fact, um, uh, the, 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 and Paul in Acts 20 calls the Word of God the Word of grace. The Word of grace. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the, that's the, that's the gift of God. That's, a, that's the power of His strength here. And He enables you to say no and say yes. And I wonder if there's someone here who say, you know what? As it stands right now, as I look at my life, I have been on the path of destruction in verse 6. And if my life were to end today, I would be counted among the ungodly and my way shall perish. I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have a relationship with Him. I'm not walking in the Word of God. I have not had a heart that's been made new where the law of Christ has been written on it. You say today, that's going to change. And I'm going to depend on the one whose blood speaks for me. If that's you, I'd love to speak with you after this morning service. I'd love for you to be someone who turns from the way of destruction to the way of the righteous through Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters who know the Lord Jesus Christ, keep running. Keep running. 
Keep running in the love of God. Stay in His Word. Talk with it to one another. Turn it into your prayer. Keep running. Let's pray.